Chapter Five of the Finding of Holgren by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And I've brought you to this. The master pilot, when he stepped forth upon that weird globe, which was the moon, found himself plunged into a spectral world. Even from within the airtight suit, through whose helmet glass he peered, he sensed as he had not went inside the ship, the vast desolation, the frozen emptiness of this rocky waste. His suit of woven metal was lined throughout with heavy fabric of insuline fibers. That strange product brought from the jungle heat of the upper Amazon to keep out the bitter cold of this frozen world. His ship was felted with the same material between its double walls. Without it, there would have been no resisting the cold of these interstellar reaches. But despite the padding within his suit, he felt the numbing cold of this dead world strike through, and the bleak and frigid barrenness that met his gaze was so implacably hostile to any living thing as to bring a shudder of more than physical cold. No warming sun as yet reflected from the rocks. About him was the blackness of a fire-formed lithosphere, whose lighter veining and occasional ashy fields were made ghostly in the earthlight. One slow, all-seeing glance at this, one moment of wondering amazement, when he tilted his head far back that he might look up to the mouth of the crater and see, in a dead black sky, the great crescent of earth a vast incredible moon peeping over the serrated edge. Then, as if the interval of time since leaving the ship had been measured in hours instead of brief seconds, he remembered the flashing light that had signaled from below. His first step carried him, slipping and sprawling awkwardly, across a rocky slope white with the rime of carbon dioxide frost. He came to his feet and turned once to wave toward the ship where he knew Spud O'Malley must be watching from a lookout. Then moving cautiously to learn the gauge of his own strength in this world of diminished weights, he started down. Rough going, Chet found. The wall of this great throat had not hardened without showing signs of its tortured coughing. But Chet learned to judge distance and he found that a fifty-foot chasm was a trifle to be crossed in one leap. Huge boulders, whose molten sides had frozen as they ran and dripped, could be surmounted by the spring of his leg muscles that could throw him incredibly through the air. And always he went downward toward the place where the lights had flashed. They came once more. He had descended a thousand feet. He was estimating when the black igneous rocks blazed blindingly with a reflected light like that of a thousand suns. Another hundred feet below, down a precipitous slope, was a broad table of rock. He saw it in the instant before he threw one metal-clad arm across the eyepiece of his helmet to shut out the glare. And he saw, in that fraction of a second, a moving figure, another like himself, clad in an armored suit whose curves and fine-woven mesh caught the light in a million of sparkling flames. 
It was Hallgren, he told himself, and there was something that came chokingly into his throat at the thought. That lonely figure, one tiny dot of life, on a bleak and lifeless stage. It was pitiful, this undying effort to signal, to let his own world know that he still lived. Chet did not put it into coherent words, but there was an overwhelming emotion that was part pity and part pride. He was suddenly glad and thankful to belong to a race of men who could carry on like this, who never said die. And, as the glare winked out, he threw himself recklessly down that last slope and brought up in a huddle at the feet of the one who had started back in a fright. There was one metal-cased hand that went in a helpless gesture to the throat. The figure, all silvery white in the dim, earth glow, staggered back against a wall of rock. Only by inches did it miss a fall from the precipice edge where the rock platform ended. From the floor, where his fall had flung him in awkward posture, Chet saw this, saw it, and marveled vaguely. What picture had he formed of Hallgren? What had he expected of him? He could not have told. Certainly, it was not this slenderly youthful figure, nor this reaction, that was more of fright than startled amazement. And the voice, surely, he had heard an involuntary, half-stifled scream. He came slowly to his feet, and he was wondering now if his deductions had been wrong. He had been sure that the sender of those messages was an Earthman. He had been so certain of finding Hallgren. Slowly he crossed the table of rock toward the waiting figure. Gently he extended his hands, palm upward, in a gesture of peaceful promise. Whoever, whatever this was, this moon being, who had signaled, and in doing so, had happened upon the letters that had a definite meaning of Earth, Chet knew he must not frighten him. One outstretched hand touched the metal that cased an arm, moved upward to the headpiece, as close-fitting as his own, tilted it that the light of Earth might shine within, and show him what matter of being he had found. And Chet, who had seen strange creatures on that dark moon, where he and Harkness had explored, was prepared, despite the suit so like his own, to see some weird being of this newer world. But for what the soft light of the distant earth disclosed, he was entirely unprepared. Eyes blue and lovely as an azure sea, but wide with terror and dismay, eyes that showed plainly a consternation of unbelief that changed slowly as the blue eyes stared in the Chet's gray ones, until they were suddenly misty with tears, and the figure sagged and would have dropped at his feet had he not caught it in his arms. He heard his own voice exclaiming in wonderment, A girl, one of our own kind, out here on the moon? Another voice, sweetly tremulous, replied, Oh, it's true, it's true, you have come. You read my call. Oh, I hardly dared hope. Then the thrilling ecstasy of happiness in the voice gave place to accents of dismay as some horror of fear swept in upon her. And I've brought you to this. You will be lost. Quick, 
Climb for your life. I will come after. Quick, quick. There was an agony in the voice now, and the figure wrenched itself from Chet's arms to point one slender hand upward in frantic urging, while yet the head turned that the eyes might look backward, as if some danger threatened from below. I've got a ship, Chet assured her. God knows who you are or how you got here, but it's all right now. We'll leave. He had regained his grip upon one of those slender hands and was preparing to swing her up to the top of an incredibly high rock. Her scream checked him and sent his one free hand to the death knight pistol at his waist. Behind you, she cried. Look back. They have come out. The crater pit behind and below them was black with the inky blackness of smooth fire-formed rock. Its many facets were smooth and polished. They made mirrors, many of them, for the earthlight reflected from the crater mouth. They served to diffuse this dim light and throw it again upon the monstrous blackness that was swarming from below. Men thought Chet in one instant of half-comprehension. Then, as he saw the chalk-white bodies, the dead and flabby whiteness of their faces, from which red eyes stared, he revised his estimate. Here was nothing human. The pistol was in his hand, but as yet he had not fired. Only the terror in the girl's voice had told him that these were enemies. He waited for a closer view, or for some direct attack, and needed to wait but a moment. Only an instant after he had seen the chalk-white bodies clustered below were in motion. They came leaping up the smooth expanse of rock, and they were obscured at times as if by black curtains that were drawn across their bodies. Then they would flash out again, in dead-white nakedness. It was uncanny. Chet had a feeling that they were wrapping themselves in black invisibility. Only when a score of the white things threw themselves out into space did he know the truth. Out and upward they sprang, to soar above Chet's head and land on the slope above. All escape was cut off now, but it was not this thought that held Chet motionless for that moment of horror. It was the glimpse he had had against the light of the crater mouth of beating, flailing wings that whipped the thin air above him, of curved claws, and of long, horrible tails that might have belonged to giant rats. And the demoniac cries that the thin air brought him were no more suggestive of devils unleashed than were the leathery wings and the fleshy tails of the beasts. Yet it was not this alone that stunned the mind of the master pilot, but the horrible incongruity and of this monstrous inhumanness allied with the human form of their bodies. And throughout he observed, with a curious sense of detachment, the furious beating of the wings, almost useless in the thin air, and the expansion and contraction of sac-like membranes on each side of the necks which he took to be auxiliary lungs. It was the girl's action that brought Chet to his senses. She moved slowly across the smooth table of rock toward the three or four beasts who had gained its level. 
Her head was bowed in utter dejection. Chet sensed it as plainly as if she had spoken. She held out her hands helplessly toward the creatures, and in that instant Chet's pistol spoke. Tiny shells, those of a detonite pistol, and the grain of explosive in the tip of each bullet is microscopic. But no body, human or inhuman, be it made of flesh, can withstand the shattering concussion of that exploding shell. The beasts beside that figure, slenderly girlish even in its metal sheath, fell into the pit beyond. Their screams rang horribly as they fell. There were others who took their places, and they, too, vanished under the smashing shots. And then, after timeless moments of waiting, while the only sound was the half-audible voice of the girl who sobbed, Now you are surely lost. They will kill you. You should not have fired. I should never have brought you here. There came the familiar thunder of a ship's exhausts. Down from above, a black shadow came silently crashing. A blaze of light, terrific in its brilliance, brought an exclamation to Chet's lips and hope to his heart. Spud, you old fool, you're coming to get us. But the words ended with an avalanche of bodies that threw themselves down the black slope. There were others coming from below, leaping from the stones. The ledge was filled with them. Chet was firing blindly as he felt himself borne down, felt long fingers that ripped, then closed about his throat and jammed the metal of his suit in chokingly. He heard the beating of giant wings about him, felt himself half carried and half thrown toward a floor of rock below. There was an opening that loomed blackly in that floor. One glimpse of his surroundings Chet had before the press of bodies closed him in. They were forcing the shining, silvery figure of a girl into that black opening, dropping her. Then he felt himself hurled into the same void, while above him a ship of space thundered vainly from her great exhausts, as if roaring in rage at her own futility. End of chapter 5